Today on the Doc on the Run podcast, we're talking about the special considerations overweight runners need to think about when they want to get to their goals without getting injured. And before we get started, just to say thank you to all you runners who listen regularly, I want to let you know that we're running a contest for the next three weeks. I'm giving away three 15-minute phone consultations completely free. All you have to do to enter is go to iTunes, leave an honest review, just saying what you think of the Doc on the Run podcast. Then subscribe to the podcast and send an email directly to me at drsegler at docontherun.com to let me know that you posted your review on iTunes. Hi, I'm Dr. Christopher Segler, and thanks for tuning in to the Doc on the Run podcast, where we help you understand how to keep training and running, even if you've been injured. Now, today I'm really excited to have Gary Stotler on the show, and Gary is a guy who's really inspirational. He actually went from being 400 pounds to running 100 miles. So, Gary, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Maybe what you could do is just give us a little bit of background about how you got to 400 pounds and then what changed and inspired you to try to get to the point where you could actually run 100 miles. So I I grew up uh, overweight. It's just the way that it was. Um, Seventh grade for my football physical, I weighed 215 pounds. Um, I graduated high school somewhere around 275, 300. Um, I actually had to cut weight my senior year to be able to wrestle 275. Um, And then when I got to college, I lost all of my muscle mass because I started drinking and uh, eating like a freshman that uh, doesn't have any money. So always eating out. And uh, when my my wife had our first son, I gained more weight than she did. And then when we had our second son, um, again, I gained more weight than she did. Then uh, on my oldest son's, three days before my oldest son's fourth birthday is when I stepped on the scale and uh, it read 397 pounds. And it literally scared the death out of me. I knew I was on a fast track to a heart attack by the time I was 35. And I knew something had to change. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how I was going to do it. But I knew that I would never, ever, ever wanted to feel that way again. I mean, obviously, that's uh, something that a lot of people don't even notice, right? That they don't really realize how at risk they are. And there's no question, like the medical literature is just rife with all these very specific correlations between, you know, being that heavy and the risk of a heart attack, stroke, diabetes, all sorts of chronic illnesses that will kill you. Like, really, Mm -hmm. you know, people who weigh 400 pounds don't live to be 100 ever. Right. It just doesn't work exactly. that way. So so what really went through your head? I mean, when you had this sort of shock that you had gotten that heavy, even though you'd been heavy as a kid, as, through high school, through college, what struck you so much? Was it just that because you had kids, you were more worried now? Or why did this really strike you so significantly at that time? I wanted to be able to see my kids graduate high school. Uh, my, I lost my dad when I was in high school and to a heart attack. And when I saw the inside of my coffin that day, I never, ever, ever wanted to feel like that again. I don't, I don't want my kids to miss out on their dad because of his choices, his poor choices. And it, it scared me. Literally, I, I woke up on the inside of my own coffin and it was, it was the best, worst thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, you know, my dad actually died when I was in my first year of med school and he had a long, um, history of heart disease and, and that kind of stuff. He died at 59. And, you know, it was interesting because I have kids now and he never met them. And, and somebody asked me one time, like, it was actually my son. He actually asked me if you could have 
dinner with any two people, alive or dead, who would it be? Which was an interesting question from a nine-year-old. Um, mm-hmm. And at first, I started thinking about all these famous people, past presidents and that kind of stuff. And I and so we were driving along, and I was thinking about it. I said, you know, actually, if I could just have dinner with any two people, it would be my dad and my grandfather, because because I was relatively young when they when they died, there's all these questions I have about like raising kids and stuff that I actually would like to ask them, but I can't. And mm-hmm. uh, and so you know, unless that's happened to you, you don't really understand the the impact of it. But obviously, this really really kind of frightened you, and and then you decided to lose the weight. So did you immediately just decide you wanted to start running or what, how did you get from just making that decision of realizing you need to lose this weight to really starting to run and develop these goals that you have? So my first thought is I have to do something and I have no idea what I'm going to do. At this point I had been uh, out of college and in sales for about four or five years and I am a huge I, I was never a huge reader until I graduated college, but once I graduated and got into the real world, I started reading and studying and book after book after book on self-development and sales. And even even to today, I've never finished a book on running, a book on losing weight, a book on fitness and health. They bore the fire out of me, and I think they're all wrong. <laughs> uh, so I get so frustrated at these books. But what I did was... Um, my favorite book in the world is Think and Grow Rich mm-hmm. by Napoleon Hill, uh, oh, yeah. written early 1900s. So that was that was the start of um, the information that I used. And then there's a book called The Compound Effect by Darian Hardy. And if you've ever heard of The Compounding Penny, where I offer you $3 million today, or t- um, a penny that compounds every day for 31 days, most people will choose the three, the $3 million today because they get it now. They don't have to do any work for it. They just, they, I'm going to hand you $3 million and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's, that's cool. But they don't understand that the compounding penny after 31 days is worth $10 million. So with, with this, um, he has, he, in the book, in the audio book, actually, um, he talks about an interview with Dr. Oz. And Dr. Oz talks about if you just, cut out 125 calories a day over something like three years, you would lose 33 pounds. Well, 125 calories is literally a a cup of cereal, not even a bowl of cereal, just a cup of cereal. So it's nothing. It's a soda a day. Um, And if you walk something like three quarters of a mile, you would burn 125 calories. So essentially you you do something that's as small as 250 calories a day would lose 66 pounds after three years. So I use that basic concept of, well, what if I just walked around the block today and then I walked around the block tomorrow and then I walked around the block the next day? Well, that's what I did. So first day, walked around one block. Second day, I walked around two blocks. Third day, I walked around three blocks. And eventually it took me six months, but I was walking five miles a day. And on the eating aspect, I didn't know what was healthy food. Growing up, I thought soda was healthy because it didn't have any fat in it. I had no idea about sugar. I mean, I just, I didn't know. And now that I look at it, it's my own fault. I should have learned. But even into college, I didn't understand that eating three Big Macs was a bad bad thing. I didn't understand that Taco Tuesday, eating 12 tacos and drinking two pitchers of beer 
wasn't healthy. It just, it never resonated in me because it was never something that was brought to my attention. So I knew that if I tried to change too much too fast, I would fail because believe me, I failed at losing weight uh, 25 plus times. I mean, I would lose 20 pounds and I'd gain 40. I'd lose 25 pounds and I'd gain 50. So I knew that I couldn't change too much too fast. So I went back to this basic concept of just cutting out a little bit every day and just changing my mindset rather than trying to change everything else and focusing. Losing 100 pounds was never my goal. My goal was to make a lifestyle change. And so I started eating out of a four-ounce salsa bowl. If it went in my body, it went through this four-ounce salsa bowl. And so I just learned to portion control my food. And believe me, when you fill up that four-ounce salsa bowl, you're like, oh my God, I'm still hungry. But the physical act of having to walk back to the kitchen and fill up your bowl again, go back to your seat, eat it, go back to the kitchen, fill up your bowl again, walk back to your seat. When you're on your fourth bowl, you're like, oh my God, I've had so much food. But in reality, it's that mental aspect of, being conscious of how much you're eating. So for the first six months, I ate out of the salsa bowl and I took a walk around the block. And that's, that's what I did. I just, I knew that I had to focus on the action, the daily action and taking those small steps every single day. And going back to the running, it's also a misconception for myself. It took me 14 months to take my first running step. And all I did was walk. And that's, that's how I did it. Um, I didn't even become a runner until, um, I saw Nikki trying to run and, um, then I started running the exact same way, literally on my, on one of my walks one day, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to try running. And so I, I tried to run a block and it was miserable. Uh, I was still 270, 280, somewhere around there. And it it was awful. Um, I wanted to quit. In fact, I did quit after that block and I cried for two miles home while I walked. Uh, I can't believe that I can't run a block. This is, I, I was sad. I was disappointed. And so luckily I got back up the next day and ran two blocks. But, and uh, that, yeah, that's how, it, that's how it started. Just little bitty steps, a little bit at a time. You know, I think everybody wants a magic pill and there's so much of this stuff about, you know, just American culture with pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you can do anything and, you know, anybody can be president and, and all that may be true. But the problem is, is it instills in us this idea of overnight massive change that's not realistic. And I just did um, something interesting you were talking about with the salsa bowl approach is I just um, recently did an interview with Dr. Stefan Guillenet about stress-related eating and how that affects runners. And one of the things that he talked about is just in making food choices about obviously like not filling your house with, you know, you don't have a jar of candy sitting on the counter. But he said one of the most important things is to only have food visible that involves some sort of effort barrier. And what he meant by that is like if you have an orange on the counter, okay, well, you you know, if you get hungry, you can eat the orange. Well, you have to peel the orange. And, and believe it or not, like those very small effort barriers – can often be the difference between eating something and not eating something. And obviously an orange is a relatively healthy thing, but still there is this effort barrier. You have to do something to prepare it. And 
when you have processed foods that, you know, you just open like a bag of chips and start eating them, it, it removes that effort barrier. And, and that in itself can be a huge difference. And just like you say, you have to get up off the couch and get your four ounce bowl and fill it up and then sit back down. And that effort barrier makes a difference. And uh, it is interesting that it is the small changes. I do a book club basically with uh, medical students. And the very first one we ever did was Think and Grow Rich, because I think it's one of the most important books ever for somebody who's trying to set goals. Um, but there's another one that I don't know if you've read this one or not, but it's The Slight Edge by uh, Jeff Olson. Um, no, I have not read that one. I think you'd really enjoy this. So it talks about those same things. And, you know, and he basically argues, I think, pretty convincingly that you don't have to have this massive goal or massive change. You need to make very small improvements and do the things that you know work only slightly better. Even a very small improvement in each of these areas will wind up as massive change for the exact same reason that, you know, compounding a penny every day turns into many millions of dollars, not just three million. Mm -hmm. But that's really what it is. It's about making these very small changes. So obviously you don't, you know, wake up one day and go uh, get on the scale and say, oh man, I got a problem. I weigh 400 pounds. I better go run a hundred miles tomorrow. You have to, exactly. you have to do something to get there, but you have to also be realistic about it and not give up. And I think that's really the big challenge is that, you know, people give up. It's pretty easy to give up when you have an enormous goal like that. Obviously, you went about the right way. Even though you hadn't read a bunch of books on running or weight loss or whatever, you realize you had to start expending more energy and, and burn more calories. You start walking and working your way up. One of the things that can happen, particularly runners, I do see runners that, you know, are overweight and they get discouraged I mean, there's enough to discourage you already, right? Like it's a very difficult <laughs> challenge and you don't need more discouragement. And I, I have heard from lots of runners that they've actually been discouraged by physicians. And one of the common misconceptions is that being overweight can actually put you at increased risk of overuse injuries when you start running. And just last week, I was lecturing to a large group of physicians at the International Foot and Ankle Foundation meeting. And specifically, I was giving a lecture on what can be done and how we can do things differently when treating runners to help reduce their risk of recurring overuse injuries, you know, like stress fractures and tendonitis, all that kind of stuff. And when I started that talk, what I did was I just asked the question to the audience. I said, you know, what factors do you think actually put runners at risk of increased injury? And, and of course, this is all doctors. One of the first doctors raised his hand said, high BMI, which of course means body mass index. And so, you know, and I said, well, that's interesting. I thought that too for years because we're always told by other doctors that, you know, if somebody weighs more than, um, then that's a problem. And lots of doctors actually believe that a high body mass index or being overweight can put a runner at increased risk of injury. The idea that that increased weight that they're carrying results in more pounding from the force of gravity when they start running. But interestingly, if you actually look at all the research that's been done on running injuries, it doesn't turn out that way. The, the sort of best one study you can read on risk injury in runners was published in the British Medical, uh, British Medical Journal on Sports Medicine. This is in 2007. It actually looked at all the variables that contribute statistically to running injuries. And a high body mass index was actually protective against foot injuries. And there was some evidence that a high body mask index of like greater than 26 actually protected male runners from overall lower extremity injuries, not just the foot. So 
I guess one question I have for you is when you started down this path and started running, you're really trying to change your life. Did you, did you run into any doctors or friends or family members or anybody that suggested that like running might not be a good idea just because you're heavier than some other runners? So, uh, with friends and family, I actually hid the fact that I was trying to lose weight, um, because I was, I was scared of what everyone would say. Um, and after I ran my first marathon, I had this blinding pain in my knee. And, uh, so I went to the doctor and he's like, well, I can't find anything wrong with it. Um, but my advice to you would be to just stick with, uh, five K's because you're just, you're too big to be running. You know, a man your size does not need to be running. And after I got over the eventual tears of someone telling me to stop running and I had, I didn't even love running at this point. I had just completed a marathon and I was like, this is amazing. I cannot believe that I just did this. And at this point I didn't even have ultras on my mind, but the fact that he looked me in the eye and said, you should quit running because you're too big it lit a fire underneath me. Uh, don't ever tell me not to do something because I'll do it twice and I'll take pictures. <laughs> and so when he told me that, uh, it, it lit this fire underneath me. And so I spent two weeks in the pool, literally running in the pool so that I could keep my fitness so that I could take all of the weight off of my body, but still keep myself in condition because I had a marathon like two months after my first marathon, I was running my second one. So that's what I did is, is I just went to the pool. I said, what can I do that takes, that allows me to keep my physical fitness, but also allows me to keep weight off of this so that it can recover and it can heal. So that's what I did. I ran in the pool for two weeks, every single day, 30 minutes a day. And so a month after my marathon, I actually went to the mountains where I live and I did 31 miles for my 31st birthday, which was technically my first ultra, even though it was unofficial and it was just me and a car following me to make sure that I didn't get eaten by a bear or run into a moose or something. But that, that was my first step towards saying, screw you. I'm going to do what I want. Don't tell me, don't tell me that I'm too fat to run. Don't tell me I'm too big to run because I'm not. And I actually wrote a blog about this um, sometime last year. But someone asked me, they said, well, what happens if you get a knee injury that puts you out? Or aren't you worried about having to have your joints replaced when you're 50? And I looked at them and kind of sarcastically, but kind of seriously, doctors can replace my knees. They can replace my hips. They can replace my shoulders, but they cannot replace my heart. And if I have a heart attack and I go, that's one thing because I'm overweight, because I made wrong decisions. You know, you can't, nobody's going to give an overweight 50 year old, a new heart. That's just not the way that it is, but they're going to give a physically fit 50 year old new knees, new ankles, new joints so that they can go and continue running. And I guess my point with all of that is even if I screw up, even if I do hurt myself running these crazy distances to prove myself that I can do it, if they have to replace a knee at some point in time good let it let it happen doctors are amazing now but you guys aren't gonna you can't put a new heart in me from a 25 year old it's just not gonna work that way one of the fascinating things i remember about sitting in class in med school was i don't even remember which course it was but i was sitting there and i remember the the guy lecturing said the very first symptom of heart disease in most adult males is a fatal heart attack 
that's not a good thing. So if you're a man and you have a heart attack, you actually, you know, may well die as your very first symptom. And so that's not a good thing to experiment with. You don't want to play around with that. And also, you know, this whole thing speaks to like this misinformation from doctors. And I used to race motorcycles before I went to med school and had a knee injury. And the orthopedic surgeon, he actually listened to my story and he said, oh, so your knee only dislocates when you're riding motorcycles. And I said, well, yeah, but, you know, specifically just on left-handed tracks, like it's actually okay on mostly right-handed tracks. And he said, well, you just quit riding motorcycles then, like in all seriousness. And I was racing professionally at the time. And, and then that same guy, after he did my reconstructive knee surgery, when he realized I was not going to quit riding motorcycles, he told me, um, he said, you know, if you ever run you're going to have to have a knee replacement within 10 years and it's, you're going to be too young and you, you know, so you don't want to do that. Well, that time when he actually told me that I would definitely have to have a knee replacement within 10 years was more than 25 years ago. And I've done 15 Ironman triathlons. I run all the time and I literally, like, I think about him still, and I think I should see if Dr. Harvey's still in practice. And if he is, I should make an appointment and just go see him and just say, hey, you know what? You were wrong. So, you know, you don't really have the right to tell people that with 100% certainty they can't do a given activity when you don't actually know that. But that's mostly what doctors do. And, of course, they really do want to protect you. They, they really are on your team, I guess, just like as your family members are. But even even as Napoleon Hill, he talks about this a lot in Think and Grow Rich, that some of the people closest to you who are seemingly supposed to be most supportive of you will tell you all kinds of things about, well, you shouldn't start that business. You shouldn't set that goal. You're setting yourself up for disappointment. And they don't want you to get hurt, uh, but it's counterproductive to your overall goal. And, you know, you have to surround yourself with people who are going to be encouraging. So, um, how did you, how did you find people to help support you? I mean, it seems like, you know, if you're kind of keeping this more or less a secret, did you, did you, did you run into any other people who were kind of on the same path that did help support you and encourage you? You're listening to the doc on the run podcast. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Runner's heel pain, self-diagnosis and self-treatment written by the world's leading expert on runner's heel pain. When runners with heel pain get help from Dr. Segler through a virtual doctor visit, they ask the same questions. How do I know I really have plantar fasciitis? What do I have to do to get my heel pain to go away? How can I stay fit and keep running while I heal my plantar fasciitis? Dr. Segler wrote the book on runner's heel pain specifically so any runner like you could get the same answers he gives to patients he sees in person. He wanted to create a way you could get $500 worth of expert advice for less than the cost of a copay right now, without waiting for some doctor's office to open. Runner's Heel Pain, Self-Diagnosis and Self-Treatment. This book will teach you exactly how the world's leading expert on runner's heel pain helps runners run and heal. Get the Kindle version on Amazon today for only $14.95. All right, welcome back to the Doc on the Run podcast. So... Um, how did you, how did you find people to help support you? I mean, it seems like, you know, if you're kind of keeping this more or less a secret, did you, did you, did you run into any other people who were kind of on the same path that did help support you and encourage you? So that first year I was completely quiet, um, on social media. Uh, I ran, I walked by myself. Um, I walked with Nikki, um, 
but yeah, that first year until my first anniversary and I had lost 110 pounds, I didn't say a word to anybody about losing weight. And a couple of people noticed, um, especially a lot of my customers at Toyota, they would walk in and say, oh my God, Gary, you look fantastic. What are you doing? Um, but other than that, I didn't make a big deal of it. Uh, I didn't even get into social media until 18 months after I had started and I was training for my first marathon. And then, you know, I fell into Instagram and I found a lot. Of, I live like th I used to live three hours from Denver and through Instagram, I met all of these people that were like minded. They were all a lot of us were running our first marathon. Um, at the, we were all training for the same race. And through hashtags, uh, we just found each other. And we still to this day, uh, there's a group of like eight of us that still hang out and still chat with each other and still run races together. But that was my first uh, true outside influence of people that encouraged me to not give up and encouraged me to keep going. And um, at that point in time, it was no longer about losing weight. It was just about running a marathon. And so we were all going through a lot of the same struggles. We were all having wins at different times. We were all having different losses at different times. But by, by kind of having this close-knit group, even though we were three, four hours away, and we had never actually met each other in person, we had this support group kind of within ourselves. And then through, through social media, um, I, that's kind of when I started telling my story and what I had done and what had happened. And that's kind of what's put me at uh, where I am today. But, you know, some of my closest friends were people that were strangers two years ago, three years ago, and I found them through social media and, um, now, now we encourage each other in person and we run together on a regular basis. But, um, yeah, I just, because of what Napoleon Hill talks about that your, your friends and your family are going to discourage you, um, mainly because they're so scared that you're going to fail. It's not that they're bad people. It's just that they get worried about you dis keep being disappointed. So I just knew going into all of this that I couldn't make a big deal about it. And then when I set my goal to lose 200 pounds, when I set my goal to run a half marathon, I still didn't tell anybody because I was afraid of what they were going to say and how, you know, when you tell somebody you're going to lose 200 pounds, the very first thing that comes out of their mouth is, oh my gosh, you shouldn't do that. That's losing too much weight. <laughs> and now I look at myself and I'm like, I am completely healthy. Uh, I've gone from over or high blood pressure my entire life to normal blood pressure for the first time in my life, no medication. I, I run, you know, even on a recovery month, I run 120 to 150 miles a month plus cross train and do this. And I don't sleep very much. And I'm, I'm always going, going, going. And a lot of people look at it and they're like, you're going to crash. You're going to crash. You're going to crash. And I have had to put blinders on that saying, no, I'm not going to crash. No, this is actually healthy for me. You have no idea. And the reason that I just go, go, go is because I, I was talking to another guy um, last month at a marathon and he used to weigh 400 pounds and he's also uh, run a hundred mile race. So we were chatting and I, was, I just asked him, I said, Hey, do you ever feel like the weight of the world has just been lifted? Like, do you ever feel like you just have so much energy and you can spring up every single day because you're not weighed down? And he said, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. 
And so I think one reason that we have so much energy is because it took so much effort to get ourselves out of bed mm-hmm. when we were 400 pounds, let alone go for a walk, let alone make the right decisions, let alone go to work. But it took so much effort to get out of bed that now you know, we're excited about life and we have energy because we're physically fit and we're eating the right foods and, you know, we have, we have big goals. So, you know, like you take all of that pent up energy and it's like Tigger, you just, you can just bounce and bounce and bounce all day long. And it's one of the best things that's ever happened because of where we came from. And uh, just, I guess, kind of going back to the friends and the family, like they don't understand that feeling because they've never taken the steps forward. They've never been in the position that we've been in to have to make those hard, hard choices every single day just to get out of bed. And so they don't know how great it can be. And they like are going back again to the magic pill. Everybody wants a magic pill. Nobody wants to put in the work, but it's the work and the failures that you go through every day that's actually going to get you where you need to be, where you want to be. And it's going to do it in a healthy way. That's interesting. And I, yesterday I was listening to a podcast. It was on a different topic, but the interviewer asked this guy who was actually from Germany. He said, do you think that because you came from another country as an adult to America, it's given you an advantage? And he said, it definitely gave me an advantage because I grew up seeing the way things should be in my home country. And then I came here And when I look around, I see the differences. And he said, I see differences that normal Americans don't recognize. They don't see what opportunities in front of them. They don't see what advantages they have because they grew up with them and they don't recognize Mm -hmm. them. And so, you know, when you go from this situation where you've been inactive and you've been, you know, unable to do all these things and suddenly you start having this, it's, it's not surprising that you'd have so much energy, that you could do so much and you recognize how, how great it is, you know. And so many people who are completely physically capable of doing those things don't really recognize it as an opportunity and, and in a sense they squander it, you know, they just don't take advantage of it. So, uh, but it's not easy, right? It's not easy to lose all that weight. And, uh, I think, like, I think a lot of shows, uh, like the biggest loser have in, in some respect (laughs) made this difficult for people. And, you know, and I remember years ago when it first came out watching them and they would say, you know, it's just a simple formula. You just, uh, you burn more calories and you eat less food. Well, that's sort of true. And you spoke about that, that you realize, you know, like, okay, if you don't drink a soda, you, you know, immediately you eliminate over a hundred calories. And if you walk around the block, you eliminate a hundred calories. And it's more than just math though, you know, and, um, and if you're actually trying to get to the place where you're running consistently, you're working toward becoming an endurance runner, you have to make sure you're getting all the nutrients you need to rebuild tissue that gets damaged as a normal consequence of your training runs. Because every time you go for a run, you damage tissue. That tissue mm-hmm. rebuilds itself you know, when you rest before your next workout. And if you do that correctly, then you, know, you do a little tissue damage, it gets repaired, you get stronger, and then you go do it again. You have to have the building blocks for that repair process. So it isn't just that you eat less and run more. Just eating less and running more is going to be a recipe for disaster because you're going to get an overtraining injury. So what sort of strategies did you use to make sure you were really optimizing your nutrition as you started ramping up your mileage You know, after that first year? Uh, that is a phenomenal question. And I'm going to kind of take you back to the beginning and walk you through because uh, more, more full disclosure than anything 
So when I first started, I was still eating all of the bad foods that I was used to. I was just portion controlling the amount of food that I was eating. So about six months of portion control, then I started eating better foods. I started eating more fruits and vegetables. I stopped eating, you know, a freaking ton of spaghetti and um, I started switching my spaghetti noodles for uh, spaghetti squash and I bought a, one of those spiralizers. And so I was using, instead of using noodles, I was using uh, zucchini noodles and things like that. So just some simple transitions, um, simple, just mixing up a few things in my diet. And then I did, I hit a point where I was actually under eating. Um, and I, I think I hit a depression state. Um, I hit a point where um, I was, I think I was actually starving myself. And I was trying to do so many things all at once that I was actually under eating. And when I got into ultra running, that's actually what I believe saved my life and saved my eating and saved me from starving myself. Because when you're going to run 50 miles, you have to eat. <laughs> and I, you do because oh, it sounds simple but yeah it's true you know you can't and you can't drive your car across the country without gas that's exactly it and you know i would when i was uh when i was in the moment i wasn't thinking about how little i was eating i was just going 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 but i just remember i would get up some days and i would get dizzy and i would fall over and you know i would get these massive headaches and uh i just it would hurt and so by getting into ultra running and forcing myself to eat and having to, you know, eat 25, like the thought of eating 2,500 calories to 3,000 calories a day was foreign to me at this point because I had learned to just cut out so many calories and so much of this that, um, you know, by running 50 miles, I started to get into, you know, eating better foods, eating whole foods, uh, less processed foods, because I was still conscious of how many calories I was eating. But I was like, I'm hungry. And I, I know that I have to eat. If I'm hungry, you know, maybe I, I need to, I need to eat an apple instead of eating, a, you know, a cookie or something, because they're gonna, you know, one cookie and one apple might have the same calories, but which one's going to do you better? Obviously, the apple. And, you know, just making sure that I'm eating the right proteins. I'm at this point, I was no longer eating, you know, a freaking 16 ounce prime rib. I might be eating a four ounce sirloin um, on top of a salad or something. So, you know, just making sure that I'm balancing, balancing my food. Um, and what actually helped me with this is I joined a CrossFit gym and um, they did I can't remember what it's called now, but it's uh, balancing like your proteins and your fats and your carbs. Um, but yeah, going through that, I mean, just kind of learning, learning that you do have to have carbs, that you do have to have protein, that you do have to have fat, all of this, uh, you know, and it just taught me just enough to make it my own and just to make it conscious of, you know, okay, I can't eat two pounds of steak today and that's it. Or I can't eat you know, just salad all day long with nothing else on it, um, or just a head of lettuce. Like I had to balance that steak with the salad with some vegetables and maybe some peanut butter or something, you know, just to kind of look at that holistic look at my diet. And once I started doing that, I realized that I could eat more than I'd ever eaten, but I was making proper food decisions. And so I felt better physically. My body felt better physically, mentally, I had never been on top of my game like this. 
And then I was like, this is amazing. Like I've never been able to eat this much food, work out this much. And um, after I started eating better, I actually gained 20 pounds. But I had a body scan done um, through the CrossFit gym and I had lost 6% body fat. As I gained that 20 pounds, I lost 6% of my body fat. And when I got that body scan back, I said, oh my God, I am onto something. And so now I just, I just make sure I make good decisions when I'm eating. Um, you know, I do, I do screw up. I'm just like everybody else. You know, there's a cake sitting there. I'll probably eat two pieces. Um, there's, there's cookies or something. Um, I'm an emotional eater as well. And, uh, this weekend I had a rough weekend. I ate some bad stuff and now I just got to forgive myself and move on. So that's just kind of what you have to learn how to do is balance everything. You know, just cause you're training for a marathon doesn't mean you can eat whatever you want. You still have to make proper decisions. And I think that was my main advantage with how I started with the year plus of walking. I learned that by walking five miles, I couldn't go to my house and reward myself with food because in my head, I didn't burn enough calories to justify eating, you know, a bowl of ice cream. And I think a lot of people, a lot of marathon runners, you know, like they'll go out and run 20 miles on this Saturday and then they'll go eat a freaking large pizza because they're like, oh, I earned it. I'm like, no, no, no. Like you're, you're, you don't get it. Like I, food is not a reward. And, you know, if you go run 20 miles, go to the movies or something, you know, go do something that's different that you can still recover from, but don't waste your 20 miles of effort with a freaking pizza or a bowl of ice cream or something, you know, change up that reward and then you will actually get closer to your goals, you know, by, by making the correct decisions rather than having the wrong rewards for what you've done. You also have to think about what is the real goal. So if your goal of running 20 miles is to be stronger the following week, then you need the appropriate building blocks. You just did a lot of tissue damage and pizza is not going to heal that. Exactly. Ice cream is not going to heal that. But, you know, if you come home and you have a, like a recovery smoothie that's just filled with antioxidants, leafy green vegetables, all kinds of fruits and different forms of protein, that's going to help. If you have mm -hmm. a balanced meal that has a wide variety of foods and includes a wide variety of micronutrients that you need to rebuild those tissues, that's going to help. You know, you have to think about what the goal is. And if the goal is just to eat junk food, you know, you don't need to run 20 miles, right? You can, I mean, if you right. really want to do that, you can just do the math and then go do a workout that corresponds with that. But if you're trying to train as an athlete, you have to really think about what it is that's going to help you recover so that you don't get an overtraining injury. Because that overtraining injuries are under recovery injuries, really. So mm -hmm. it's that you've done too much damage and you built it up over time. You didn't let it recover and then you get damaged. It really is these small choices and it really is about balance in a whole variety of different ways. You know, it's not just balance in terms of protein, fat, and carbohydrate. It's balance in terms of the way that you view it. Mm -hmm. Obviously this was working, right? So you're ramping up your mileage, you're getting stronger, you're, you're more and more fit. What happened? Like, how did you get this idea about Leadville? Uh, so I actually read... I don't maybe like 50 pages of Born to Run, mm -hmm. and I, I still never finished the book. It bored the crap out of me. But um, I somewhere in there it talks about this Leadville 100. Why in the hell would you ever run 100 miles? It just doesn't make sense to me. 
Yeah, so why don't but, you just tell, so for those who don't know what Leadville is, why don't you just tell like briefly what that race involves? Uh, so Leadville is in Leadville, Colorado, and uh, the starting line is at 10,200 feet above sea level. And it's a 100-mile race through the mountains, and uh, you go out 50 miles. Uh, you start at 10.2, you kind of drop in to 9,600, then you go over like 11,500 feet, drop back down. Uh, you go down through Twin Lakes, which all, drops at the river crossing drops to 9,200 feet of elevation. And then you crawl up Hope Pass, which is a little over 12,600. Then you drop back into Winfield, uh, which is at 10,000 feet. And then you turn around and come back. Um, so it's it's one of, it's uh, Leadville, I believe, is the highest uh, city in the U.S., and so it's just this little tiny mining town. Uh, Leadville was started when the mine shut down. They needed a way to bring tourists to the city. Um, last year was the 35th anniversary of the race. So it's, it's an iconic race. And Leadville has become a very special place to me. I've had some major life events happen there. I've had some good things and some bad things happen there. And Born to Run, it just talks about bringing some, uh, some ultra runners from a different country into the race to... Uh, see how they would do. Leadville is a, it's an iconic race, an iconic place, um, and it's a 100-mile race, and you have 30 hours to complete it, which is quite the task because 100 miles in 30 hours is tough. Running 100 miles in 30 hours would be difficult on flat ground at sea level, but that's not what we're talking about. I mean, this thing is like difficulty of mythical proportions, right? Oh, it is really something that most people are never going to attempt, but, but you decided this would be a good idea. So I read so. about it in the book. Um, and then like three months later, I was just cruising through Facebook and this live feed came on my Facebook page from the Leadville race series. And I'm like, what is this? So I, I just pulled it up and watched it for a few minutes. And there's uh, this race called the Silver Rush 50, which is uh, done by the Leadville race series. And it's a 50 mile race. It's actually on the, the opposite side of Leadville um, and the mountain range on that side. And I was like, wait a minute, there's a 50 mile race up here. So I started looking at it and I was like, oh, I got to run this. Like, this is going to be my first 50. So that's what I did. I just, I set my goal to do the Silver Rush 50. Well, as I was training for the 50 mile race, um, let the Leadville 100, because so many people try to enter it, it's a lottery system. So you have to put your name in the lottery and you have to be chosen and then you get to run it. Well, at the, the Leadville Race Series races, they have a half and a marathon and the 50 and some other races. They actually, they'll pull five numbers at the end of uh, people that finish the race. You can put your bib number in and they pull it. And if they pull it, you get a, you don't have to wait for the lottery. You get a spot. So you just have to pay for it. So I finished the 50 and they pulled my number. So I got a lottery coin into the Leadville 100. So that's how I actually got into the 2017 race. Um, so I knew I was in 13 months before the actual race, which was a good thing and a bad thing for more, more reasons than we have time to go over. But uh, <laughs> that's how I got into Leadville. And that's how I kind of got into, you know, even thinking about ultras and uh, 50 milers and 100 milers. Uh, Silver Rush was actually my first official ultra marathon. Yeah, first organized one. I mean, again, you did that that thirty whatever thirty one mile run, right? Like well, on your birthday, um, which technically is ultra distance, but this is the first organized one that you actually participated in, right? Exactly. So, what was that like? I mean, uh, that experience because I would have to imagine 
it's pretty incredible to to think about getting from that point where you stood on the scale that day and looked and realized you weighed almost 400 pounds to then going to, to run a an extremely grueling 50 mile trail race what was that experience like it was hard um and i guess hard is probably an understatement but um so a marathon is 26 miles um i did my first one in five hours um did my second one in like four hours and 30 minutes or something and so we i did a marathon the next year uh, as a training run for Silver Rush, and I kind of hurt myself. Um, just my body wasn't, my body didn't feel right, my knees hurt, and um, it was probably the undernutrition and the overtraining and um, whatever it ended up being. I didn't really know what the heck I was doing training for 50 miles. And so I had a friend that I was running with at this point, and we just went out and we, she's like, you know, we have to get as many, as much time on our feet as possible. So that's what we did. Uh, we would go out for like a four-hour run on Saturday and a four-hour run on Sunday, which really isn't a lot when you think about training for 50 miles and 100 miles. Do you think that contributed to your injury that you got? This was actually after my injury. The Before my injury, I just wasn't, I wasn't cross-training. Um, I was just going out and I was just running roads and I just didn't know what I was doing for these amazing distances. And part of that was just I wasn't educating myself in a proper way. I wasn't thinking holistically about the training. I was just, I need to go run a whole bunch. And so that's what I tried to do. I didn't have the proper knowledge going in. So that was probably my fault for not having a coach and not having people um, that knew what they were doing helping me along. Yeah, we um, uh, like three days before the race, before the 50, I had a friend that I had met a month ago and I had helped him through his first 100-mile race, and he texted me and he said, hey, you know, do you mind if I come run the 50 with you? I really appreciated your help getting me through my race, and I want to come return the favor. He actually drove down and ran the whole 50 miles with me, which was amazing because without him, I would not have finished that race. I just physically wasn't in good enough shape. Uh, my core broke down, my back broke down, my legs broke down after mile 30, I wasn't eating anymore because it was hot and I wasn't hydrated and my race was completely destroyed. But with his help, you know, and having him working through me, talking to me, saying, hey, you know, all we got to do is just get to the next aid station. All we got to do is get to the next aid station. Hey, you know, you need to be drinking more water. Just simple things like that helped me get through the finish of the race. It was exhausting. It was miserable. And it was the coolest thing I've ever done up to that point in time. So what are you up to now? You know, what's your training schedule like? Um, I mean, what are you doing right now? Like, are you actively training for anything specific? So um, the Leadville 100 last year, I did actually fail at mile 69. It took me some recovery time. I had a, I had a bad year last year. I pretty much took from August until December, you know, I might have run 100 miles a month um, through that time. And then in December, I kind of, I started getting back into my groove. Um, right now, I'm just, I'm focused on just having some fun running and running trails with friends and uh, just running roads with friends and run groups and stuff. But I did get back into Leadville this year um, so I can go back. And so I don't, I don't actually start my training schedule until April 1st, but um, I, I am a true strong believer that your base is the most important thing that you can possibly do and your daily habits and your 
um, your schedule, your routine, that is all the most important thing. So in all of this recovery time, I've let my mind heal. I let my body heal. And right now I'm just, I'm just running for fun and just trying to get into a routine because um, I recently moved to Colorado. So that's added a whole bunch of new, new things into my routine. So I'm, I'm literally just rebuilding myself and rebuilding my fitness right now. So um, as far as what my training looks like um, in February, uh, my goal is to keep it minimal and run like 125 to 150 miles this month. And I have a gym membership with a pool. So the pool is just something that I just enjoy doing that helps me recover as much as work out. I'm starting yoga and that's something that's I've always wanted to do. I've just never had the mental capacity to just chill out for an hour. <laughs> so um, that's actually, it's, it's m as much mental training and uh as it is physical training and stretching and then i'm getting into some different group classes um just some group physical fitness classes so um, i know that my core is something that i need work on so um stuff like that so yeah right now i i go to a group fitness class three days a week i go to yoga twice a week i run 125 to 150 miles a month and then in april um or March, I'll, I'll add an extra day of um, group training. I'll add, add an extra day of yoga. And I'll probably go between 150, 175 miles. And then in April, when I start, I will, I'll be in the gym five days a week and I'll be running 200 plus miles a month. So now I know that because of your experience and the enormous change that you have had, um, you've done lots of speaking engagements. And so I know you, you can inspire and do inspire a lot of different kinds of people. And I saw some pictures on your website of you with a group of kids. And I'm just curious, like with the current epidemic of childhood obesity, do you ever make it a point to go share your story with groups of kids? I do. Yeah. So the picture that you're referencing is actually um, a guy I knew from college. Uh, his significant other is a teacher and they were doing a 100 mile uh, challenge for the year. And so that was right after I finished my first hundred. So she said, Hey, it'd be so cool if you just came down and we can tell the kids that what they're doing over the year you did in just over a day. So I had the opportunity to go down and talk to them. And, uh, we ended up, um, I helped them raise some money for, um, uh, after school program that gets them outdoors. And, um, I ended up running, I did, uh, 5k with the fifth graders. And then directly after I did a 5k with the sixth graders. And so I just had so much fun doing that. But one thing that we, we talk about is a lot of these kids, um, you know, they, they get stuck on their tablets or they get stuck in front of the TV or something. So just getting them active and it's not even really about running. It's just about getting, if we can build the habits while they're kids of just exercising 30 minutes a day, even if it's just light, get outside, get some fresh air, get some movement in them, you know, if we can build that when they're young, then they can take these habits into junior high, high school, and even into adulthood. Um, and just getting outside, just staying active. You don't have to run 100 miles to be active. You just need to get outside. You just need to take a walk. And, you know, the same lesson goes for a fourth grader as it does for uh, a couple that's 40 years old. If everybody would just get outside for 30 minutes a day, they would realize how great it feels and that 30 minutes would turn into 45 and it would turn to an hour because they're like, this is amazing. 
and I feel so much better after I get outside rather than sitting in front of the TV watching reruns. And so, I mean, the same lesson goes for kids as adults. Just get active. Just get outside. Just do something. Do something that gets you moving because motion creates emotion. And if you're moving, if you're, if you're just going, 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 your emotions are better. And even as we're talking, I'm pacing back and forth in the living room, just, you know, moving my hands and my everything. And I just feel so much better when I'm walking back and forth. Um, so, yeah, I, I love talking to kids because, you know, they're so impressionable and I can get excited. And some days I feel like I'm a 12 year old. And so just getting in a group of 12 year olds, I can just have I can have a different kind of fun. And it brings back this aliveness that uh, that I don't get to have with an adult. That's true. And I, um, I I like to run primarily. That's I mean, I do Ironman triathlons. I, so I swim and I bike, too. But I really love to run. And uh, and I was recently talking with one of my best friends about this. and He's really into yoga. And, uh, we both have fairly busy lives. You know, we have work stuff, we have kids, we have all these different commitments and, and it happens periodically where, you know, I get really busy, um, and I have tons of patients, tons of remote consultations on Skype or, you know, by phone and lots of house calls. And suddenly it's been two or three days since I've been active or, you know, since I've run and, as a consequence of being injured from all these motorcycle crashes and stuff in my past, I, you know, my back gets really messed up. I get really tense. I start having headaches. And if I just go run like three miles, it doesn't even have to be a long run. If I just go run, it's unbelievable how much better I feel. And my, my buddy was saying the same thing where he, you know, was very busy with a bunch of construction projects where he lives in Colorado, but he owns a construction company. And he gets really busy. He's busy with his kids. He skips a few days of workout and then he goes to like one yoga class and it's night and day in how he feels. And I think that's really important because when you grow up as an inactive kid, how would you even know that? You know, how would you know that this can be a solution for, for those problems? Because when we feel like we have back pain or we have a headache, most people think, well, you should take it easy. And that makes it worse, not better you know, mm-hmm. so it is counterintuitive sometimes. So I think it's really important that you're teaching these kids that it really can be, a, you know, different, that life can be different. You don't have to have this same risk of obesity that is so overwhelming right now in our culture. And there really is a simple solution. So um, in along those lines, do you actually do any personalized coaching for people who want to lose weight and want to start running? I do. Yeah. Um, so I have a couple clients right now and we do anything from just doing their first 5k to, um, just getting off of their couch. Um, I have, I do have one client that we, we have a holistic look at her life and, you know, we do, it's, it's more life coaching, but there's some, some physical fitness aspect in it as well. Um, I do not do weight loss coaching. I don't, I don't know enough about specific weight loss. Like I'm not going to tell you to become plant-based or I'm not going to tell you, you have to eat 2000 calories a day. I want to look at the holistic look at your life and say, where can we add 20 minutes of physical fitness? that's going to make you a better person. It's going to make you feel better because that's, that's where I want people to live these full lives instead of just going out and saying, I want to lose 20, 20 pounds. Cause I can guarantee you losing 20 pounds is not going to do what I can do for you by looking at a holistic look at your life. I recently, I was in Houston. I was running with my sister at Memorial Park, and I think I took a picture of it. I'm going to look and see. If I did, I'm going to find it and put it 
in the show notes. But basically, there's a section where you run past the tennis courts and there's one of those green, you know, backboards where people hit tennis balls against it. And on the side of the running track where we're running, someone had spray painted this little tiny image and it had basically a silhouette of an obese guy running and then it had a white arrow and then there was a skinny guy running. You know, and it really is that simple. It's like if you start running, it's going to be very difficult to not lose weight. But it's not so simple as like you just start running. You don't go out and just run five miles with a running group. You know, you have to get there. And so that's why I was curious about you doing coaching because it's not so simple to just go out and start running. And I think many people who try to start running will get discouraged very, very quickly because they go out and they realize they literally can't even run to the end of their block. And when they read all this stuff or they see these Instagram posts with everybody putting their Strava map on there, of, you know, I just ran 18 miles today. And it can be discouraging, you know, because we sort of instinctively compare ourselves to what we see with other people. And having somebody that has been through it who can actually explain this is how you get from point A to point B. You don't just go from running and being 400 pounds to doing Leadville. There's a very long course of change that has to happen to make that happen. And you have to be able to stay on course without getting discouraged. Seems like you really have a unique perspective that could help an awful lot of people along that path. Yeah. And when you work with me, there's no 90 day fix for anything. Um, right. I, right. I, one thing that drives me crazy is these people like Jillian Michaels and whomever else that are like, oh, I can fix you in 90 days. Cause no, you can't. You know, you don't know what it's like to be. 400 pounds and get your ass off of the couch. You've been physically fit for all of your life. Like that's, and that's the understanding that I hope that I bring to people is, you know, look, I've been where you are, if not worse. And I've put myself in the top 1% of weight loss. And I've put myself in the top 1% of running by taking little bitty steps every single day rather than just saying, I'm going to get off my couch and go run five miles. Because just it, unfortunately, it's not that magic pill and it doesn't work that way. All right. So somebody approaches you, let's say somebody calls you up and says, okay, look, I'm going to lose some weight and I'm going to start running. What is the one piece of advice you would offer to a listener who just wants to lose some weight and wants to start running? Ooh, that's a great question. Because when somebody calls me up and says, that I'll ask them 25 questions to find out what their true goal and their true motivation is. Because when we have to look at what's really driving these person, these people and person, like if they want to run a marathon, I want to know why they want to run a marathon. And most of the time, like all of us want to look good in a swimsuit, but that's not what's going to get us off of the couch. We want the energy to play with our kids. We want the energy to be better at uh, work. We want the energy to be better with our spouse, uh, with our kids, whatever it might be. But I guess if I if I had to boil it down to you know what piece of advice, if you want to lose weight, it would be to take that step off of your couch and just for 30 days, set a time, whether it's six o'clock in the morning or six o'clock at night, and go out and walk for 20 minutes, for 30 days, just for 20 minutes, every single day for 30 days, because what's going to happen is if, if I can teach you to get into the habit of walking for 20 minutes at the same time, every single day, I can teach you whatever else we need to do to get you where you want to go. Because it's all about that habit building and it's all about that first step. And what I find with people is that 30 day challenge to get off of their couch for 20 minutes 
turns into them getting off of their couch for a half hour, 45 minutes or an hour by the, even long before we get to that 30 day mark, because they realize that 20 minutes isn't a lot of time to get outside. And it's 20 minutes is simple. If you can't find 20 minutes in a day, just cut out your favorite TV show. And there it is. Right. Uh, cut out a rerun and there it is. And so, you know, 20 minutes feels so good to most people. And most people can walk one mile in 20 minutes. And so then they're like, wow, 20 minutes, I'm already out here and I feel so good. Why don't I just keep walking until I'm tired or walking until I'm done? You know, next thing you know, an hour goes by. And by walking, you don't physically exert yourself to the point where you wake up in the morning and you're sore and you're tired and you don't want to do it again. You're like, wow, I feel rejuvenated. I feel better. I have more energy. So they have that confidence to go out for that second day. And by when we track this, the people that do it every single day for 30 days have a much higher success rate than the people that do it for three days and then skip two days and then do it for a day and then skip a day and then do it for four days. Like it's all about building that solid habit on something simple. And uh, my favorite quote from Jim Rohn is, what's simple to do is also simple not to do. <laughs> I tell and, people that all the time. It is the best quote ever because it is yeah. true. You know, he just says that. I mean, I can still hear his voice every time I think about it. You know, it's so <laughs> easy to do, so easy not to do. It's exactly. true. It really is. And, you know, and it sounds silly when you say it, but it's absolute truth. Like Jim Rohn talks about, he said, it doesn't take much effort to walk around the block. Exactly. And it has to start somewhere. It really is about that first step. What's the best way for listeners to get a hold of you? Like, how can people reach out to you if they want you, you know, to talk to you about coaching in terms of getting to be more active, if they want to hire you for a speaking engagement or connect with you? What's the best way for listeners to reach you? If you go to my website, uh, outrunyourexcuses.com, there's a speaking tab and uh, you can contact me through there. You can email me at gary at outrunyourexcuses.com. You can find me on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash 400 to 26.2, instagram.com slash 400 to 26.2. Um, you can call me, number is 303-661-7780. Text me, you contact me, I'll reply back. And, uh, you know, let's, let's get you started. I can fly across the country. I'll actually be in Orlando uh, next week. I've got time and I'm here to help. So let me know how I can help you. And let's connect and let's get you where you want to go. Fantastic. So we'll put all those links and your phone number and all that stuff on our show notes so that people can reach out to you, they can connect with you, and they can get on the right path. Gary, this has been fantastic. I mean, your story really is incredible. And it's been great having you as a guest on the show today. So really and truly, thanks for coming on the show today. I've enjoyed it more than you know. Thank you so much for having me. Runner's Heal Pain, self-diagnosis and self-treatment written by the world's leading expert on runner's heel pain. When runners with heel pain get help from Dr. Segler through a virtual doctor visit, they ask the same questions. How do I know I really have plantar fasciitis? What do I have to do to get my heel pain to go away? How can I stay fit and keep running while I heal my plantar fasciitis? Dr. Segler wrote the book on runner's heel pain specifically so any runner like you could get the same answers he gives to patients he sees in person. He wanted to create a way you could get $500 worth of expert advice for less than the cost of a copay right now, without waiting for some doctor's office to open. Runner's Heal Pain, Self-Diagnosis and Self-Treatment. 
This book will teach you exactly how the world's leading expert on runner's heel pain helps runners run and heal. Get the Kindle version on Amazon today for only $14.95. If you have a question that you would like answered as a future edition of the Doc on the Run podcast, send it to me. And then make sure you join me in the next edition of the Doc on the Run podcast. Thanks again for listening.